Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Marble Palace, Saskatchewan Post Media's look at the goings-on in provincial politics. I'm Murray Mandrick, political columnist for the Regina Leader Post. Joining me today, and for the last time, we'll get into that later, uh, Arthur White Crummy, uh, our legislative reporter at the Leader Post. Hi, Arthur. And joining me quite often and all, every day at the Ledge is Adam Hunter, uh, Provincial Affairs Reporter for CBC in Saskatchewan. Hi, Adam. How you doing? Hi, guys. Good. I'm going to start with you, Adam, uh, because uh, we were all in, in the scrum yesterday with the Premier, uh, where I think there was actually more news coming out of what he might have said than the actual uh, uh, PIOC announcement uh, that was held earlier, although the PIOC announcement very much set the stages for the Premier. I was a little surprised to see that they seem to be pretty serious about maintaining uh, COVID-19 restrictions, specific restrictions existing for some time now because the Premier has uh, talked about the declining numbers into the double-digit category. Can, can you just review uh, for those that weren't aware what the Premier had to say about that? And I guess to ask you, were you as surprised as I was uh, that they weren't more aggressive in terms of wanting to remove restrictions. So the the, this, the restrictions or the public health measures that are in place expire on November 30th. That's masking, isolation, and even the proof of vaccination requirement. Uh, Dr. Shahab has said in that PIA call and to, to media that you know he's in favor of holding on to these measures for the time being. Um, you know, the, the Christmas season is coming up. So we asked the premier about this, you know, whether these, ex these would be extended uh, through December into the new year, perhaps. And he said that, well, he didn't confirm it. He said it was likely he was giving everyone sort of the soft sell uh, that it's reasonable because of what we're seeing with the numbers going down. And I think a lot of the criticism that of the government's handling of, you know, previous waves that we hear every day in the legislature and even from people outside the legislature is that things were removed too quickly, that the government uh, rested on current numbers rather than looking at modeling and things uh, the way things could turn. And the premier yesterday really poured cold water on any chances of lifting restrictions. I know Marie, you asked about agribition, which is coming up next week. And he said, well, yeah, these restrictions are gonna be in place for agribition. They don't expire until the end of the month. Uh, it seems to be a foregone conclusion to me at least that they're gonna uh, keep with these at least until Christmas. But I did ask him about gathering restrictions because you guys will both remember and a lot of our, our viewers and listeners will remember that that was a huge controversy last year when, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before Christmas, really, the premier floated the idea of allowing gathering uh, inside of uh, long-term care homes. And this is before we had our big uh, wave in long-term care homes in January and all, all the deaths that happened specifically, you know, in Regina. And that was later uh, went back on by the premier and he said, you know, no, we're not, that's not what we're going to do. There was like some criticism at that time of that stance, but it sounds like the government is going to stick with the gathering restriction recommendation rather than putting it as a public health order. And that's something that medical health officers have asked for, that there's limited gatherings for unvaccinated people, that numbers go down, but that doesn't look like the direction the government's going in. I don't think that's surprising. Uh, I think given what we've heard every day from the premier and the health minister and other members of the government about uh, how well the COVID case numbers are doing compared to September, I think it would have been surprising for them to lift those restrictions or it would have been uh, probably, you know, they're probably not hearing as much criticism as they have been in the past week. So uh, to get that message out there now to let people know when it's a lot, it's, it's 
far, far enough in the future that people can plan around things. But uh, proof of vax, isolation, uh, mass requirements are likely to stay at least until the start of 2022. And I think, you know, through the winter, we'll have to see. Even Ryan Miley yesterday, interestingly, said, you know, we'll have to revisit it, see what cases numbers are like. So he didn't say, you know, we need to keep these going indefinitely. Uh, that wasn't his message yesterday. What do you think uh, is going to happen with proof of vax? Is that, that actually was the one that surprised me the most. I thought if there would be one restriction that they might move on more quickly, it would be the restrictions on requiring proof of vaccination, large gatherings, etc. But uh, I think we're hitting an all-time low uh, in terms of uh, numbers, not an all-time low, but a low since September in terms of numbers of people vaccinated probably has something to do with the weather, but that's still a massive problem uh, for the government, uh, Adam. And I, I guess uh, the question I'd have is, was it as surprising as it seems to me that they didn't specifically offer hints on proof of vaccinations, which I think has been a problem for the government in terms of difficult things to sell, even more so than masking at times? Uh, I think there you're not seeing any of the provinces moving on that. And there's other provinces that have uh, lower case rates, higher vaccination rates in Saskatchewan, which would have a better argument for, for removing those. And they haven't, there hasn't been any rumblings about that at all. We know that the requirement for flying has now come in and, and traveling by train. Uh, so I, I think that there isn't any momentum to change that. There may be pressure on the premier. There may be internal pressure, external pressure, uh, but there's going to be a hard sell for to the public that we need to lift this proof of vaccination so soon after it was mandated, after all the, the trouble they went to, including mandating government workers, healthcare workers to do it, you know, teachers, uh, there's other requirements. So I think that's one area where you're not going to get the vax rate moving up if you remove proof of vaccination, because some of these numbers that are trickling in now, especially when you see I think 30 to 39, and I'd encourage people to look at these numbers. I know CBC's, we're, we're doing some reporting on this uh, currently. That's where the province is really flatlined, that age category. And it's really interesting. You see 12 to 17s are some of the highest uh, as far as vaccination coverage. And then you have, go up to uh, 80, 80 year olds over 65. Uh, but that 30 to 49 specifically is really, really tricky and, and low. And those are people that are going to need proof of vax to get into public events, to get into movie theaters, concerts, uh, sporting events, things like that, city facilities. So uh, that's one that I think the government, and we asked them about how they can increase those rates. The Johnson Johnson vaccine may be one of those uh, answers. It's now available to people. It's a one shot, 14 days after you're considered fully vaccinated. The government had argued that that was one thing that maybe was going to keep keeping people away from getting vaccinated. We'll have to see how that imp impacts the numbers. But uh, I think... Uh, it's, it's probably too early for them to remove proof of vaccination, seeing as no other provinces and the federal government aren't moving on that at all. Are there, we're hearing less about the specific numbers in the legislature, or at least the current numbers. We heard a significant amount earlier in the session, maybe about how uh, uh, the government uh, needed to move uh, quickly as per what we talked about last week with SAC stories and uh, it, its failure to follow the modeling. But I'm really intrigued by this fact, that at least in the last week or so, maybe longer, I've been plotting it probably as much as you have because you do the daily QP. We're seeing that the opposition move to other issues as opposed to COVID. Now, to me, that just basically says other issues just don't go away. We still have concerns of jobs, 
Uh, we had that fascinating story with the Finn family uh, in, and the, the, the sort of a longstanding uh, uh, tradition. But let, let's talk a bit about what the opposition is saying and how they're approaching uh, the COVID strategy a little bit uh, more in, uh, than uh, than uh, than perhaps they have in the past in terms of basically focusing on uh, on uh, more of an analysis of what went wrong in the past as opposed to uh, the daily crisis. I guess I'm curious, is it because the numbers are good enough where it just doesn't necessarily make as great daily fodder for the opposition or are just are they just being overtaken by the usual issues that we have in um, in question period yes uh well i think covid remains a sort of you know consistent backdrop here even when they're uh raising job numbers and the state of the economy they are connecting it back uh to the pandemic and in the NDP's view, the you know government's mismanagement of the pandemic. The argument is that we would be in a much better economic state if they had to put the right you know public health measures in place at the right time. Uh, so you know we're 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 not seeing COVID nineteen totally recede in that uh, in that view. But uh, the job numbers did uh, give uh, the NDP a, a bit of fodder. I mean, both parties can always find something in. StatsCan's, uh, you know, monthly job report uh, to uh, defend their own case. Uh, uh, the NDP saw uh, 6,500 job losses uh, month to month, whereas uh, Jeremy Harrison from the SAS party saw one of the lower, you know, unemployment rates in the country. We're still below the, you know, national average. That's really just an artifact of the fact that we started out with a better job kind of condition before the pandemic and we've lost more jobs during it than other provinces and have been slower to you know recover while most of Canada is now above the total number of jobs that they started the pandemic with we are still uh, about 1100 12 sorry 12,000 jobs or so below where we started so that has uh, you know given the NDP a bit of a uh, club to try to batter the government with, uh, and they've also gone after them on health-related issues that are not directly related to COVID. So you, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk about the- yeah, or sorry, let's talk about that because this is more the traditional thing that that happens in question period where governments have to deal with real people's problems brought forward by oppositions, and this has gone on for. A uh, hundred years. I think I wrote about today about how the ironic thing to me in relation to the story that you're about to describe is this, at least in form, similar to what the, op- uh, the SAS party in opposition used to do in terms of raising these stories. But let's start with the situation of five-year-old Connor Finn and his family uh, that had to go to the U.S. University of Minnesota for a very specific surgery because it was unavailable for here and. Please. Yes, so this was a case that was first raised, if I recall, uh, back in the spring, but uh, at that time we weren't able to bring guests into the legislature. So uh, the situation that the Finn, that the uh, Finn family was facing was quite dire. Uh, their son, the previous year, had been uh, had been facing a rare brain condition uh, that it, it, it's called ALD. It involves a buildup of fatty acids within the brain that can eventually uh, lead to a vegetative state if it's not treated. And that can happen quite rapidly. So uh, the uh, family was told that their best chance 
for their five-year-old survival was to go to this world-class clinic down in Minnesota. Um, and that the you know services and treatment that they needed, a bone marrow stem cell transplant, would not really be available within Canada. And they didn't want to jump through all the hoops to, to get the consultations in Calgary and Toronto because time was really ticking here. I mean, every, I think that the way that the mom described it was time is brain. The more time you wait, the more these fatty acids build up and the more you're facing lesions and brain damage that could be permanent. So uh, they ended up taking their son uh, down to Minnesota, uh, though there was uh, some damage, uh, they were able to stop the you know condition from you know, progressing to a, a, a really severe state, uh, but it ended up costing them about $832,000. And uh, they obviously were looking for the Saskatchewan government to cover this, uh, but really went through a bit of a bureaucratic morass here. They, uh, they, uh, they uh, were at first refused, but did get a decision from the health services, uh, the health services, the health services review committee saying that the government should reconsider actually, you know, covering this bill. But yet uh, the health ministry continued to uh, to uh, deny them coverage. So for two days this week, the mom uh, came to the Saskatchewan Legislative Assembly for QP with the NDP while the NDP pressed their case. And only yesterday did we see the government at least you know, committing to give this a second look. We don't really know what's going to happen, but uh, they're saying that there's going to be a resolution to this situation within days. And uh, they really did seem seem on the defensive because this is a tearjerker. It's a rare, exceptional case. And I think a lot of people, at least based on our numbers, uh, were connecting with this story. So it'll be interesting to see how the government reacts. That's an excellent point. I'll bring Adam in here uh, because... There has been a lot of things that have not worked for the opposition in terms of, 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 of chipping into this massive government lead. But from past experiences, what, uh, what I've seen of, uh, of past governments that also uh, were very successful is one of the problems that they run into is exactly stories like this. And uh, uh, they get connected with the reasons for not doing something as opposed to what happens in opposition, which often is driven by the reasons for doing something. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier with Arthur, that the, the, there's a story related to a woman named Crystal Bondrud, who husband Doug died of stomach cancer, in essence, that had spread elsewhere because of tumors that weren't initially diagnosed. And she went down to the Mayo Clinic back in 2006 with her husband for surgery that ultimately wasn't successful because uh, the cancer spread. But at the date, the SAS party took hold of this story and uh, and really made it a issue in the legislature and otherwise. And I guess I'm kind of wondering right now what you're sensing, Adam, in terms of how the government now feels about this story and why they might have not drawn on that experience from opposition days and maybe reacted a little bit better, a little bit more efficiency, not identifying this as a problem. Obviously, one of the huge problems is the cost, as Arthur identified, $832,000 for the surgery is a lot of money, and we just cannot, under any circumstances, have everybody go down to the U.S. for whatever surgery they wanted. But as Arthur also outlined, you're not going to get the surgery anything else, anyplace else. So 
What do you think this has done, Adam, in terms of whatever political hit the government has had to take for this particular story? We've seen this over the last couple of weeks now, and I, I think it was a good point that you guys made earlier and Arthur made about there aren't the guests not being allowed in the legislature, you know, in recent sittings, because this really changed the dynamic, I think, this time around. And it's been now a couple of weeks of people coming in with stories related to healthcare services that have been delayed or denied in some cases. Um, this case with the Finn family is a little bit different because there's a lot of process questions. And there's some allegations that the government overrode uh, this advisory council's decision and why that was made, we don't know. There's there's other sort of layers to this that maybe aren't as simple as some of the stories we heard previously, which are more related to pandemic delays, surgical delays. And I, I think I, I was a bit surprised that we haven't heard more um, COVID related, directly COVID related cases or people that have been affected by the virus specifically or their families and the government's handling of the pandemic because a lot of days we hear uh ryan miley the leader of the opposition others say you know you've caused deaths you've caused you know suffering healthcare uh costs for people but the knock-on effect which i think are is affecting more people and maybe perhaps more people can relate to in the province of having a surgery delayed of having to wait for an mri having to wait for their loved one to get you know some kind of screen or procedure uh, those stories as arthur said are seem to be striking more of a nerve with the public and the government's reaction in each case i think has been a not you know we did the right thing we're going to stick you know stick our foot down and say okay this is this is our way or the highway we saw Paul Merriman come out and meet with the, the family of, of uh, the young Helen. We saw Premier Mo come out and, and meet with a woman who was in a wheelchair. Uh, we talked, Paul Merriman took the meeting with the Finn family and their advocate moments after Scrum. The Scrum was over uh, as we were still actually doing interviews with, with some of the members. And I think that is the dynamic that's changed this time around that we didn't get a chance to see in the last couple of sittings because there were no guests. You don't have that human connection and, and you guys know as journalists it's much harder to reach the audience and to reach people and to get people to react when you don't have a real person in front of you you can talk about a situation or someone going through a tough difficult time but when you have that person in front of you and then the government on the other hand is for, forced to confront that person and listen to their story in front of the cameras that's much different and that's what i think is 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 really been a a, a change this time around and I think the opposition obviously is, has caught on to that. They know that that's something that, that is out there, that there's a feeling out there of people being not satisfied by the government's response and some of the knock-on effects. And this, this Finn case was, was one that's, like you said, Marie, something we've seen for years. And I can remember, um, I'm old enough to remember the SAS party, yes, as in opposition, bringing out case after case after case after case with the year before they became government. And they were very successful in doing that. And I think that's an attempt right now by the opposition to somewhat emulate that. But the, the pandemic has given them, I think, an uh, unlimited really number of people that are affected. We have 40,000 people waiting or surgeries that are delayed, perhaps. So uh, that's a different dynamic we're seeing in the last few weeks that we didn't see uh, even last year. And, and the trickle in is obviously cases that, as Arthur suggested, are um, uh, somewhat pandemic related, although maybe not necessarily people who have had COVID, which seems largely to me to still be uh, kind of a bit of an invisible 
ailment in Saskatchewan because we're not hearing or seeing as much from people uh, that have gone through COVID or, or that have been severely uh, impacted by COVID financially, health-wise, otherwise, because it's still, I guess, that you. I guess it's a reminder, though, and, and I, I w- we'll close with this because, Arthur, you're leaving. Um, uh, uh, this go on to better and be- bigger things and and reconnect with family uh, back east and everything. Congratulations. Uh, but I, I just want to give you a few minutes on the podcast, basically just to talk about your experiences covering this place. What uh, covering uh, politics in Regina and covering Regina, it must have been a bit of an in- adventure for you coming from Eastern Canada as well. But but like, I mean, what is it that you think you've kind of learned about people, about politics, about how to how to be a better journalist how, how, from from being here and specifically covering the legislature? I've always been fascinated how, how it kind of does change people. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, the thing that you learn the most is just the importance of being there and being like right in the building and meeting with people that are making decisions on a daily basis, uh, buttonholing them whenever you can and building relationships. I mean, just like any other kind of journalism, that's what uh, this is about. And uh, here it's about uh, obviously getting past uh, the press releases and the, uh, and the, you know, talking points and 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 trying to really uh, figure out uh, who these people are, what makes them tick, and uh, getting them to tell you secrets whenever they can. It's tough, but uh, I think that's how we end up getting the best stories. And wherever I end up next, I think I'm going to take what I've learned here uh, and from both of you, from you know Adam and from Murray uh, being just down the hall for me. Uh, I I. I uh, Wherever I end up next, uh, that's uh, that's uh, going to be an invaluable resource. Well, you did a hell of a job here. I thank you for uh, years of good work with uh, the paper, in particular at the legislature. I wish we had more time with you, and I wish we had more time to talk about things this week. But unfortunately, uh, um, uh, this is all the time we're allotted. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining us, uh, as per usual. And yeah, thanks. And I just want to say thanks to Arthur and, and best of luck. We're going to miss you in the press gallery. You're an incredible reporter and a great guy to have around and uh, leaned on you a lot of times for advice and, and help. And um, that's going to be missed. And there's big shoes to fill uh, next door to Murray. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing what, what you what you come up with next. And we'll, we'll stay in touch for sure. Thanks a lot, Adam. And thanks so much, Arthur. So long. Thanks, guys.